This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Learn more about Reynolds' online retailing approach by visiting reyrey.com forward slash retail anywhere. That's R-U-I-R-U-I dot com slash retail anywhere. Welcome to Daily Drive for Monday, August 15th, 2022. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show, three automakers say U.S. EV buyers will lose tax credits under the Inflation Reduction Act. Tesla crushes luxury registrations in the first half of 2022. And CEO compensation surges. Plus, a look at Ford's record-breaking renewable energy purchase from a Detroit utility and what it says about the future of electrification. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Audi, Porsche, and Kia say their EV buyers will lose access to U.S. tax credits once President Joe Biden signs the Inflation Reduction Act. The $430 billion climate, health, and tax measure cleared the U.S. House last Friday, and President Biden expects to sign it into law this week. The bill immediately makes any electric vehicles assembled outside North America ineligible for tax credits. You might imagine the EU, South Korea, and many foreign automakers have criticized that element of the new EV incentives, arguing it may violate World Trade Organization rules. The bill does allow credits for customers with binding contracts for vehicles not yet delivered when Biden signs the legislation. A U.S. appeals court has rejected a legal challenge to the Federal Communications Commission's decision to shift much of a key spectrum block away from auto safety. The spectrum block was set aside in 1999 for automakers to develop technology to allow vehicles to talk to each other in order to avoid crashes. But so far, it has gone largely unused. The FCC has decided to reallocate 60% of that spectrum block to help accommodate the growing number of wireless devices. In 2020, the U.S. Transportation Department said the reallocation was, quote, a particularly dangerous regulatory approach when public safety is at stake. The FCC chair, Jessica Rosenworcel, said the decision is important to advance newer safety technologies while growing the wireless economy. Automotive CEOs are getting their money. Most top executives in the industry got sizable pay increases in 2021, but none remotely close to Tesla's Elon Musk, Tesla's soaring stock price produced a windfall of over $23 billion for Musk last year. That makes him the highest paid CEO at publicly traded U.S. companies in the auto industry by far. The new data comes from a study by Automotive News and Equilar. The median for all CEOs was over $12 million. That represents a 78% increase over the median of CEOs on last year's list. For CEOs who have been in their positions for at least two years, median compensation rose 90% from 2020. Tesla's new vehicle registrations grew 61% in the first half of the year in the U.S. That easily beats BMW for the top spot among luxury automakers, regardless of fuel type. All major luxury brands except Tesla and Genesis posted lower first half registrations. That's according to new data from Experian. But there was a bright spot for legacy automakers and EV startups in the data. New registrations of full electric vehicles also rose sharply among non-Tesla brands. 
You know, speaking of luxury brands, Cadillac will replace Mercedes-Benz as the sponsor of the U.S. Open tennis tournament. Cadillac has inked a multi-year deal with the U.S. Tennis Association with plans to use the New York City event to plug its electric vehicle ambitions, including its Lyric EV model. Mercedes had backed the tournament since 2010 when it replaced Lexus. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, it feels like we've been talking about these EV tax credits so much lately, but this top story about Audi, Porsche, and Kia highlights something that you've been saying a lot. These brands losing their tax credits, does that sort of defeat the purpose? It's definitely a big setback. There are a lot of vehicles, a lot of brands that will very quickly be excluded from the EV tax incentives. Not just those three, but also Polestar and Toyota and Hyundai. Uh, so it's going to have a significant effect on the market. It's part of a political trade-off. The aim is to encourage vehicles to be made in North America, to uh, encourage them to get their batteries, battery components and minerals from the U.S. or at least from other countries with which we have free trade agreements. But the short run effect and even the medium run is going to be to limit the use of those EV incentives. It's a, it's a definitely a change. Coming up, utilities are quickly becoming more important to automakers as EVs become more prevalent. We'll hear from an executive from Detroit's largest utility about the massive energy deal it just inked with Ford and what it says about the future of energy in the auto industry. That's next on Daily Drive. Customer wants to sign documents remotely? No problem. Customer wants to provide documentation and their driver's license in person? No problem. Customer wants to have their vehicle delivered? No problem. There are a lot of steps to complete a car deal, but what happens when customers start online and end in store, or vice versa? You need a seamless, consistent process to start work and finalize every vehicle purchase, no matter where the customer is. Chris Walsh, president of Reynolds & Reynolds, explains how. Retail Anywhere is, is powered by the retail management system. So the retail management system is the engine you know, that kind of makes this all work. And it's based on the premise that customers can be anywhere, right? They can be in-store, they can be at home, they can be a hybrid of both. It doesn't really matter, but it's a single process of interacting with that customer. And that's, you know, really important to be consistent in that way. And it's only achievable through a single system like the retail management system. Regardless of where the customer is buying from and how, Retail Anywhere focuses on streamlining dealership operations and improving profitability. For more information about this holistic approach to digital retailing, visit rayray.com forward slash retail anywhere. That's reyrey.com slash retail anywhere. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Ford and Detroit utility DTE Energy say they recently agreed on the largest renewable energy purchase from a utility in U.S. history. It's the latest example of automakers building their relationships with utilities in order to reach their EV and carbon emission goals. I recently spoke with Brian Kelka, DTE Energy's Vice President of Renewable Sales and Project Development. We talked about the deal, what it signals for the future, and how utilities are preparing for the demand EVs could soon put on the grid. Here's our conversation. Brian Kelka, welcome to Daily Drive. Thank you, Jamie. Appreciate you uh, having me here today. DTE recently announced a really big deal with Ford Motor Company 
I guess you said it's the it's the largest renewable energy purchase from a utility in U.S. history. Is is that a closely watched contest in the utility business? And what, what's really behind it? Yeah, behind this is really two partners, and this this partnership has been around for decades and decades, and it will continue decades going forward. Where alignment is key, and both Ford and DTE feel that climate change is is real impacting the world now. And, and both companies are absolutely locked in in terms of doing what they can to help mitigate the impacts of climate change. So Ford set out a very robust decarbonization strategy for the worldwide operations a couple of years back. And one of those underlying principles inside of that strategy was that they wanted to ensure that all of the electricity used inside of their facilities worldwide uh, was sourced by renewable energy projects. And this transaction that you you spoke about a second ago is allowing Ford to do that here in Southeast Michigan, but 10 years ahead of their original plan. So it's a really, uh, really exciting partnership between the two companies and and looking forward to that partnership growing uh, in the future. It's a huge commitment, right? Like $120 million a year. I think you're looking at like 650 megawatts. Walk me through the math of that kind of a of an investment and uh, and the magnitude of, of what all is being being undertaken here. Yeah, the magnitude is is absolutely just a sheerly massive uh, as it relates to renewable energy transactions. So you mentioned 650 megawatts. That's a that's a unit of measure we use for renewable energy projects and solar uh, specifically. And you need around eight to 10 acres for every megawatt uh, of capacity for a solar project here in the state of Michigan. So if you look at at the math of what you would need from a sheer size standpoint to support this type of an enrollment, you're looking at anywhere from 6,000 to 7,000 acres of land. So somewhere in the eight to 10 square miles of land just needed to support uh, the projects that will ultimately fulfill this transaction. How does DTE ensure that Ford is getting the clean energy? Are they going to be processed right near the factories? Are the solar fields going to be have proximity to where Ford's plants are? Or is it just, I mean, the grid, the electrons just flow where they need to flow, right? Is it just sort of a input versus output and make sure you create enough green energy as Ford's going to buy on the other end? Yeah, that's a great question, Jamie. So it's more the latter uh, in your list of of potential options there. So we will construct these projects in the state, uh, probably three to four separate projects to get to that sheer size, and they are interconnected into the broader electric grid. So what those what will happen is the electrons that are generated from those particular projects get intermixed with just the other electrons that are on the grid. But there's this concept of what's called a renewable energy certificate. Uh, This is a electronic kind of documentation that says, hey, for every unit of electricity put onto the grid from a renewable resource, one of these renewable energy certificates are created. And what will happen is we will actually retire those certificates on behalf of Ford. So that, that allows Ford to make the claim that these projects are because of their enrollment into our My Green Power program, and that certification allows them to state that they are 100% clean energy here in their operations. So if they're planning to buy $120 million worth of green energy 
and you have to invest a billion or something close to that to to build it out, then maybe the revenue sort of pays off in eight years or so. And of course, there's other costs, a lot of other costs involved. But is this a model that can be replicated? Is it something that manufacturers and other big energy users are likely to you know, be doing all around the country with their local energy partners? The construct that underpins the enrollment of Ford is what we call a virtual power purchase agreement. VPPA is the industry speak for uh, how the transaction is actually established. It's not unique to DT. These types of transactions are happening, not only here in the U.S., but across the world. You look at the likes of a Facebook or a a Google who are very progressive in decarbonizing their footprint as part of their overall strategy will embark on these types of transactions through their worldwide operations. So the underlying structure is not unique, but the program that Ford is enrolling into is called our My Green Power program. It's a voluntary renewables program that allows any one of our customers, whether they be residential, small business, or large business customers, to decarbonize their footprint in a very cost-effective way. You know, with a customer like Ford, they aren't just a big manufacturer, they manufacture vehicles. And like everyone else in the auto industry, there's this massive transformation from, you know, decades of all gas, almost all gasoline burning vehicles to more and more electric powered vehicles, especially those, you know, that people charge, whether it's at home or on the road or at their office. And we know there's a lot of investment coming and there's a lot of change coming. I think there's a lot of questions in within the industry and out in the public that utilities are ready to meet the moment, that it, utilities will be able to produce enough energy, safely distribute it, that it will come from sources that are better than you know, refined petroleum. How does the industry address and evaluate the demands placed on it by the growing EV trend? We spent a lot of time at DT talking exactly uh, about this topic and just the broader, what I would call the proliferation of distributed energy resources inside of our service territory. Because we're looking at batteries in, in the home, we're looking at on-site solar. There's, there's a number of different transformational activities that are going on uh, inside of the industry. And we spent considerable amounts of time focusing on it. But specific to EVs, we are constantly modeling out and trying to better understand from our, our partners like Ford and General Motors and Stellantis and others on what, and other industry experts, what that curve looks like in terms of the adoption rate of electric vehicles. We recognize that it's imperative to really understand where we're at now and where we're going, because obviously as the expansion of electric vehicles takes place, there's more need for electricity to help power the respective vehicles inside of people's garages and what have you. And what this does is it's going to force us to transform at the same time. The electric grid as it is now, we're adequately positioned to support the load that we see right now, but we recognize also that we are going to have to increase our capacity in certain areas. So what that means is we might have to upsize our substations. We might have to upsize the wires and cables to be able to provide more energy to 
the areas where it's needed, some of the transformers that help step down the voltages to be used at homes and businesses will have to be increased as well. So we're keenly aware of what's coming. We are spending right now uh, upwards and even over a billion dollars, that's a billion with a B, every single year to help with this transformation of the grid to be ready uh, when the extra load uh, is here. A, a key point though that should be made as part of this conversation, Jamie, is you know when people have electric vehicles and when they're charging them up at home, the majority of the charging is done in the off hours. People are out of their house during the day, they're at their jobs. When they come home at night, it's very easy to plug in your vehicle so that it's ready to be, so it's fully charged that next morning when you take it out. Rates of charging your EV are lower in the overnight hours. So what we're hopeful for is that that type of incentive for customers isn't going to um, lead to significant growth in electric load in those three, four o'clock in the afternoon time periods when it's hot and sticky already. But we're hoping that the load can be um, moved more so to those off hours, which will help mitigate what you have to build out for from a capacity standpoint, because you're more just spreading out the extra load and generation needs through the course of the day. We're running out of time, but I do want to get us one more question about this topic. You know, we've seen the EV market kind of grow from about two and a half percent a year ago to more like 5% now. And of course, that's only the new cars. That's not counting the uh, 90, 97% of cars that are that carried over from the previous years. But it, is it, do you notice a change in demand in where the demand is coming from or in nighttime demand from that kind of a shift? How far does the market need to go before it really impacts you know, the day-to-day business for a company like DT? Is it 10%, 20%, something like that? So... We feel and through the modeling we have right now, the infrastructure that we have in place could support upwards of 20% of all of the vehicles inside of our electric service territory being electric in nature right now. However, as we know, right, that percentage is a fraction of that, right? That's 1%, 2%, something along those lines. So right now, we're, we feel well positioned relative to what that grid is. But when you when you look out later to this decade, even into next decade, there have been goals that have been laid out where obviously new vehicle sales by the end of the decade or into next decade, 50% is kind of the number that's been thrown around what the goals are for that point in time. So for us, it's understanding what that looks like then, what the impact on the grid would be, and we can just build out the infrastructure in a smart, intelligent, cost-effective way for our customers to be ready when that type of an adoption rate is there. So we have a plan, we have to execute the plan, but we have to keep our eyes on what the actual sales look like for EVs so that if we have to make any adjustments, we can do that as we go. And we have the team in place to do just that. Brian Kelka, DT Energy Vice President of Renewable Sales and Project Development. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jamie. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Callan Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer Jake Neer for his help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on renewable energy deals, EV tax credits, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. 
come back tomorrow for a conversation about the growing threats of cyber attacks on cars and infrastructure. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.